All right, today's scripture lesson or scripture reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. This is God's holy word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. morning, everybody. Welcome to our 11 o'clock service. What a privilege it is to be able to preach God's word to you today. Uh, let me begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your Sabbath. And I pray that we'll be able to find true rest in hearing your promises. But also, God, I pray that we be challenged by your word, it cuts us like a double-edged sword. Pray, Lord, be with me as I get to preach your word. I pray, help me fade away. It's the only thing that will last is the worship of you, Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> Jump right into it. The main point of our passage today is we must press on because Christ made us his own. And we will go through it in three points. Works versus grace. Second point, Christian progress. And the third point, encouraging your brothers. Works versus grace. Last week, we went over the pattern of Christ. And how that is the basis of not only our suffering, but also the basis of our glory. And as I was thinking about what to preach today, moving from there, I was very tempted to preach on Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, the passage right before this one. I was wrestling, which one should I do? Because Philippians 3, 7 through 11 is actually my favorite passage in Scripture. But, as probably most of you remember, I already preached on this five years ago. <laughs> I'm just joking. You guys don't remember any sermon. You don't remember what I preached on last week unless I, unless I remind you. But for myself, I wanted to go beyond that and go to the next passage. But I will have to mention Philippians 3, 7 through 11 to give us some context here. Quickly, Apostle Paul gives us a beautiful discourse, meddling between practical theology and biblical theology. 
He talks about the practical theology, on how his life was completely transformed after knowing Christ, saying, I consider all things to be rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Why does he consider all things to be rubbish? Well, because of the biblical theology that comes in, which is where he once found all his identity in all of his works and performances, he now considers all those things to be rubbish, worthless, because now he finds his value, his true value, his true worth in what Christ has done on the cross. That all of Christ's righteousness now belongs to him. So all those things that he was building up for, for his own righteousness, he says, what is the point of all this? I don't need any of that because I have a righteousness that is not of my own, but of someone else's that is give, given to me by grace. This is a perfect blend between practical theology, biblical theology. Now enters our verse here. That is the context we are coming from. And it says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He just went through this discourse talking about how Christ's righteousness now belongs to him. And then all of a sudden he pivots and says, but I press on to make it my own. Which is it? Does righteousness belong to him? Because if it does, why does he press on to make it his own? Or does he have to achieve it and gain it by pressing on in order to obtain righteousness? Which one is it? Is he righteous or not? If yes, then why does he press on? If no, then how is Christ's righteousness fully his? So we'll talk about works versus grace. If our righteousness is solely dependent on Christ, then what role does works have for a Christian? What are we pressing on for? Why should we press on as a Christian if our ultimate goal is already given to us through Jesus? I think it could be better understood through this paradigm. It's what we call in theology, already, not yet. In Christianity, we have this reality called the already, not yet reality. It is the reality that something is fully yours and also not yet has come to full fruition. In other words, so Paul is fully righteous, the already. But he is not yet made fully righteous. The not yet. He is, and he's also becoming what he is. He is both at the same time. Now this might be confusing to you because this sounds contradictory. How can you have something but also be working for it? Hopefully this illustration could be helpful. There was a, uh, a couple here that used to attend Cornerstone, 
and uh, the husband is in the military, and <clears throat> got to talk to them, and they told us, you know, the story of how uh, they got married, and I thought it was fascinating. One, because it's just really unique, in my opinion, something I never heard, but if you knew the guy, if you knew the husband, you know he's a very straightforward kind of guy, he's in the military, and um, the, 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 act, the duty that he does in the, in the military is actually quite dangerous, right? He's, like, actually, like, in action. And so uh, there is, like, actual potential risk for him. And he said, before, um, well, he said, well, while we were kind of, like, you know, dating, he was about to be deployed. And where he's going to get deployed to, he doesn't know what's going to happen. So before getting deployed, he asked his girlfriend at the time, Will you marry me? Right? Proposed to her. A few weeks before being deployed. And you know, they've been talking about it back and forth, and they're kind of like, you know, the 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 wife was probably or the girlfriend was probably thinking he probably proposed to me after he comes back. But to her surprise, he proposes to her. And of course she answers, yes, yes. And all of a sudden she thinks of, man, like super excited about planning her wedding. This great day that she's been expecting for her entire life. <laughs> and the guy goes, great, let's go to the courtroom and get married. <laughs> you said yes, didn't you? Let's, why not just get married right now? She was taken aback, surprise. Not thinking that's how her wedding day will be. So they went to the courtroom, they signed the papers, got married that day. He then goes, gets deployed. And then when he comes back, they have the big wedding day. Why did he do this? Is it because he was not romantic? Not caring what his wife would want? No. It's because he understood the risk of getting deployed. He loved her so much that this was his plan. That he knew that if he got married before being deployed, that if he was killed in action, that his now girlfriend, well, before girlfriend, his now wife, will receive the full military benefits for being married to him. In the eyes of the government, they were fully married. But she didn't feel married because he gets deployed right away. Now when he comes back, what are they doing? They are working now towards their marriage. Even after their ceremony, right, they have a big ceremony, he comes back. The story is good news, right? It's a good story. He comes back and they have actually a big wedding day and then they get married uh, with a ceremony and then they are married. But while they are married, they are also working, right, towards this union that they have. So you can see, if he had passed away, she was fully married to him, be able to receive all the benefits, military benefits. But at the same time, right, they are also working out their marriage. 
I found out later that's kind of, I don't know if this happens, this is what I heard, that, you know, that's more common in people who are in the military because of that very scenario. The already, not yet. Imagine in their marriage, if any of the spouses were just like, okay, we're fully married, that's it. We don't have to work anymore. No, it's the exact opposite. Marriage can be very difficult. And oftentimes, you have to work for it very hard. You have to work for it. That's the working out of this union that you have with your spouse. So what is the role of works for a Christian? If everything that we have, right, if everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us, what is the role of works? Right? If my works don't achieve anything greater, right, a greater treasure or anything, why should I do good works? Why should I obey the commandments? What is my motivation to do good works and to obey God? A college student asked me that. It's like, if, if all my righteousness belongs to, you know, belongs from Christ, you know, and, and whatever I do, doesn't matter, I'll, I'll, I'll get into heaven, then I, I lose the motivation to do good works. I really do. And I answered, maybe, a, maybe in a mean way, I don't know, by saying, well, that kind of shows your self-centeredness, doesn't it? <laughs> saying that you only do things to gain things. The very reason the student poses that question, the question itself, shows our self-worshipping heart. What is the motivation to do good works as a Christian? If we don't gain, right, if we cannot gain salvation from it, we've already gained salvation, why do we do good works? There is a um, popular story that Tim Keller likes to uh, say, uh, which he took from Charles Spurgeon, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait! You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot." but you are giving yourself the horse. 
Why do you do good works if your salvation is already secured? The motivation switches from a self-centered, self-gaining motivation, the center focus from yourself to another. The center switches from you to Christ. Where now Christ is the center of why you do good things, why you want to do good works, why you want to put forth effort into your Christian walk because of Christ and what he has done for you and for who he is. Our second point, Christian progress. Philippians 3, 13 through 14 says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Apostle Paul, when he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, what he's probably talking about, right, when he was talking to these Christians, is the former way of how they used to do things, which is following the Torah, which is before Christ, which was the Old Testament. He's saying, see, those things I do not look at anymore, but I look forward to the new covenant, and his name is Jesus. And he does this with a single-minded type of focus. If anyone has ever competed in anything athletic, any sport, you get it. You get the idea of a single-minded focus. If you're an artist and you're working on a project, you get the single-minded focus. You get If you're a student and you're studying for your finals, you understand what it means to have this single-minded focus. The single-minded focus where you forget everything that lies behind. And you move forward to what is ahead. I remember in seminary when we're studying. (laughs) This is a joke, by the way. But while we were deciding what classes to take, we would joke and, and purely choose the class, right, depending on the physical appearance of the professor. We either wanted a really skinny professor, a really overweight professor, one or the other. The reason being, because we knew that if they're really skinny or really overweight, that all they were doing was studying scripture. <laughs> they didn't have time to work out. They didn't have time to work on their physical appearance. All they cared about was scripture. And I was like, if I'm going to study, I want to study under that guy. Single-minded focus. See, when I was in seminary, we had this thing called the intensive track. Seminary, if you guys don't know, an MDiv, Master Divinity, to get one, takes four years. If you're an RTS, eight years. <laughs> re- I'm not saying because they're dumb. I'm saying because they usually have part. They do it part time, okay? Because it takes them. They usually have. You know, they usually have part time. They do it part time students. But for me, I was single. And I had all the time in the world. And I said, I want to do an intensive track, which means that you can do the four years in three years. 
But what that means is that in the summertime, you got to take classes. In the wintertime, you also got to take classes. And then during the regular semester, you got to tack on one extra class that everyone else was taking, the intensive track. And I remember when I was in seminary, I would literally wake up, go to the library, start studying, go to class after finish class, go back to the library and study until nighttime. And so from 9 to 9, I was studying Scripture. I had a single-minded focus. And I remember during that time in seminary, what I would do is I actually served here. My seminary was in Philadelphia. I would go back every weekend, back and forth. And when I came back here on the weekends, what I did was I didn't go home to rest. I went straight to George Mason. And I remember unpacking barbecue supplies because we wanted to do outreach every single day. Single-minded focus, either studying God's word or doing ministry. I remember those days. I mean, it's not like it was that long ago. I mean, <laughs> actually, it's been a long time now. About seven years now. Oof, okay. By that time of my life, that's all I could think about. Studying God's word, ministry. Three years I did that. But as Apostle Paul says, we do not look backwards. But we look forward, ahead, and we strive. That means we do not look backwards at our past failures. Whatever you have done in the past, whatever you have done last week, does not matter. We look forward and press on knowing that Christ has forgiven us. Same goes with our past victories. We don't look back at our past victories. It doesn't matter whatever spiritual place you were, you were in, in youth group, in college, in seminary. It means nothing if you are not moving forward right now. In Christianity, standing still is going backwards. As Christians, we must progress, press on. Now, maybe many of you guys are saying, boy, that's discouraging. Because when I look at my Christian life, it has been quite stagnant for many years. David Paulson, the late president of CCEF, he says this, the pattern of our life and growth is like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down. But the yo-yo is in the hands of a man walking up a flight of stairs. In your Christian walk, your peaks might surpass, your, your valleys might surpass, your previous valleys, your peaks might surpass, your previous peaks. And your life goes up and down, up and down. But if you are in Christ, I can trust that you are like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down. But you are in the hands of a man walking up a flight of stairs. Your progress might be slow, maybe not even that steady. It might be slow, but there is progress, and I can trust in the Lord for that for you. Even for my life, when I look back. 
three years from now, even, I can see that the Lord has carried me through. So, what I'm saying here is that works is very important. I'm not saying that grace is not important. In fact, it is of the utmost importance. But that does not mean that works and effort is not important for our salvation as well. The danger is this. Too much grace, you fall stagnant and you abuse it. And possibly never having true salvation in the first place. Too much works, we become legalistic and self-righteous. And possibly we have gained nothing but a false salvation of our own. But the gospel gives us a third way, the gospel way. Both grace and working out your salvation simultaneously through the already not yet paradigm. What role does works have in a Christian? Kevin DeYoung, I quote, or he quotes, but let us not misunderstand that what it means to be gospel-centered. A gospel, as gospel Christians, we are not afraid of striving, fighting, and working. These are good Bible words. The gospel that frees us from self-justification also frees us for obedience. For obedience. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 and 1 John and Revelation 21 and a dozen other passages make clear that when we have no obedience to show for our gospel profession, our conduct shows we have not understood the gospel. God did not tell the Israelites, work hard, and I'll set you free from Egypt. That's law without a gospel. Neither did God tell them, I love you. I set you free by my grace. I ask nothing more except that you believe in this good gift. That's gospel with no law. Instead, God redeemed the people by his mercy, and that mercy made a way for obedience. Gospel, then law. Trust and obey. Let us not make the mistake of Keswick theology with this mantra of let go and let God. Justification is wholly dependent on faith apart from works of the law. But sanctification, born of faith, dependent on faith, powered by faith, requires moral exertion. Mortify and vivify is how the theologians used to put it. When it comes to growth and godliness, trusting does not put an end to trying. If anything, hopefully, this will just be a nice kick in the bottom for anyone who feels stagnant in their Christian walk. To be reminded, as Christians, you must press on. You must press forward. What ways? By what ways can we do this? In Scripture, it's typically called the means of grace. If we're training for something, what are the ways we train? Right? What are the ways we strengthen our faith? Scripture has the means of grace. Listening to God's word, reading God's word, praying, taking the sacraments, baptism, communion, fasting. There's many means of grace that is given to us in Scripture that can strengthen our faith. And we do it as an outward expression of our identity and also to work out our identity, both simultaneously. 
the already, not yet. And lastly, encouraging your brothers. Philippians 3, 15 through 16 says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We can trust God that a brother who is genuinely in Christ will come to the same maturity one day. You have to encourage your brothers and sisters. You got to trust in God that if they're truly in him, that they will come to the same maturity. Sometimes, I have a hard time with that. The trusting in God part. <laughs> Sometimes I like to take things in my own hands and force people to become mature. Especially happens when I'm hanging out with some friends. And maybe one of my friends will just say something slightly off. Just slightly theologically off. Right? Just like, I don't know. Something like, how can I say this without being super controversial? <laughs> They'll say something a little off, right? Let's just say that. That I know theologically is not correct. And they're Christians. I can't help it. It's just something comes out of me. And I just have to say, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Would you just, can, can you clarify what you meant by that? You really think that? You really think everyone's going to go to heaven? You, you really think whatever you're saying, whatever it is, something like that? I can't help it. I just have to bring it up. Because it just, it just hurts too much for me inside to know that a friend I care about might actually think that. Maybe after 30 minutes of talking, you know, destroying them in this theological debate. Winning, maybe, the argument. But for some reason, after that happens... I don't feel like I won. I feel like I lost. A friend will become upset. And uh, it just takes, you know, the Holy Spirit to come into me to do something very unnatural for me and try to sympathize. <laughs> Take a step back and forget the theological debate and just ask the question, so how are you doing, man? Just how are you doing personally? <clears throat> then they open up and will tell me, you know, life's hard. These experiences are hard. And because of these experiences, this is why I'm thinking this way theologically. Because for some reason, all the experiences in my life seem to contradict what I feel like scripture might be saying here. And I say, okay, I get it. Life experiences can make things confusing. And I understand. Taking that step back, 
to forget winning the argument, but letting the person know that you actually care for them personally. The relationship usually gets mended up after that. We're back to being good buddies. But it's hard for me to trust in God. I can really say, hey, God, oh, I know he said something a little off, a little weird there. You know, I, I, something a little, but God. Now, I'm not saying, you know, don't ever argue. Don't ever try to correct someone. Do that, but do it in a loving way. And doing it in a way that you can trust in God, that ultimately he is the one who will bring them to maturity. I mean, how many people can you think about when you were in college, right, the crazy ones, the, the party goers, like the, the really the strong party goers, that's all they did in college. And when you look at their life, now they have three kids and they become deacons at their church. I can't tell you how many times that has happened. In college, I judged them. I said, man, they are, they are lost. Probably not even Christians. But those who are genuinely in Christ, I can trust in God that he will bring them to maturity one day. So that's why it's important to encourage your brothers and sisters, no matter what state of faith they are in, wherever they are in their walk with God, it does not matter. Encourage your brother and sister. It's important. We must trust in God, knowing that they are genuinely in him, that God will bring them to maturity. Again, I'm not saying you say wrong things. That's not the point here. It is important for you to say the right thing, but in a way where they can understand and know that you also love them as a person. What is the end goal here? Apostle Paul saying, I'm single-minded focus. I have one telos in mind, my ultimate purpose in life. What is it? What is he striving for? What is he pressing on for? What is this whole passage? What is he saying that he's dedicating his life to? What is he trying to actually achieve? It is this, to know Christ and everything that belongs to him. See, Christ is the one who begins the regenerative work in our hearts. Christ is the one who gives us righteousness that is not of our own. Christ is our motivation to continue to make him our own since he made us his own. Christ is the one who preserves us to the end and brings us to consummation until glory. In other words, Christ is not just the beginning and the end. No. He is not just the Alpha and Omega. No. He is the Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, all the way through Omega. He is everything from beginning to end and everything in between. Amen. So church, press on. Though it isn't easy, we must move forward. We may have opposition, but we must persevere. My prayer for myself, for the church, is the same as Apostle Paul. For God to give us the ability and strength to press on until we have attained our ultimate goal, which is knowing Christ. Let us pray.
Father. Truly, we are all in different walks in our faith. I don't know where we all are. But I know you do. And I know that anyone who is genuinely in you, that God, that you will sustain us to the end. But yet, Father, I pray that you convict us and challenge us to move forward, to press on, knowing that Christ has made us his own. Because of Christ making us his own. Father, I pray, encourage us, especially for those who may be lazy in our walks of faith, that you will convict us, give us a hunger and thirst for the things of Scripture, for the things that you have called us to. All this I pray in your son's holy name. Amen.